Welcome to Campfire Football. I'm Sebastian North. This is episode 128, preview of the World Cup Final. So we've arrived. After four weeks of many, many games, we've seen 63. There is one more to go. The third place match was this morning, and we'll talk about that. But that's it. It's amazing how fast it happens. It's amazing how fast the tournament just comes to a close. You've got a frenetic group stage with game after game after game, and it feels like you're on overload. And then the knockout rounds, well, here they started immediately. And before you know it, you're in the semifinal, and then the final, and then the World Cup is over. So how will it end? Let's cover that today. Before I start, I want to give an ode to Sinisa Mihailovic, who we learned passed away from... A uh, long battle with cancer yesterday. Sinis Mihailovic was, for anyone who doesn't know, this guy was an unbelievable player, a Yugoslav player back in sort of the, the late 90s. Uh, went into, he played a lot in Italy, mostly for Lazio. And he was just an incredible player, had a wand of a left foot and is known for having scored a lot of quite stunning free kicks in his day. He scored one that I remember very clearly against Chelsea, another one very clearly against Leeds. Uh, these were Champions League goals that were just of the just the highest quality. He was a, really an amazing player. And so for anyone who doesn't know, Sinisa Mihailovic, look him up on YouTube, go check it out. Rest in peace, man, and uh, thank you for all the memories. And just we hope that everyone else, everyone around him is doing all right. It's always, always unfortunate to lose someone in the football world, but this is the thing, is as we get older, these kinds of things just happen more and more, right? It's just the way of life. So, all right, it's all reached a nadir. It's all reached a pinnacle. France versus Argentina. Kylian Mbappe versus Lionel Messi. Antoine Griezmann versus Lionel Messi for some people. The GOAT debate for Messi, it's completely still alive. This is going to be a fascinating, fascinating match. What's cool about this one, actually, is that it's a mouth-watering fixture, right? France versus Argentina World Cup final. It's one of those things, especially in this day and age with the players that they have. It really is a pretty exciting game to have coming up. What's funny about it is it's, it's kind of a rare occasion. It's only the four, This will be the fourth time that France and Argentina play each other in a World Cup. It's kind of astounding when you think about it. Uh, it. They played each other in 1930 with Argentina winning 1-0. This is the very first edition of the World Cup. Argentina also won 2-1 in the group stages in 78, so that was when they were at home. France got their first victory in this fixture, famously in 2018, that 4-3 round of 16 thriller that knocked Argentina out, and France ended up going on to win the whole thing, and now will be the fourth. So there isn't a lot of bad blood and history in this tie, sort of like Netherlands and Argentina, where there's a lot more. Obviously, there's other rivalries around international football that that have, yeah, something a little bit extra that history. For instance, Ghana-Uruguay, right? What happened in 2010? I mean, players were literally carrying that beef onto the field in this World Cup, even though it was 12 years ago. So there are these things. There's different rivalries. This one kind of doesn't exist, really, which I think will help the game not get out of control, um, really, in any way. I think both these teams know that they have to be clever to win because their opponents are very strong. 
and that they have to be well-disciplined, well-drilled, and to make as few mistakes as possible and hope that their star players show up. So, look, we'll get into all of this. We'll get into some of the historics as well. Um, I mean, these two teams, what's cool about them is that they both actually uh, have won the World Cup twice. France in 2018 and 98, and Argentina in 86 and 78. So the winner of this goes on to have three, which uh, would be in their own company. Then above them would be Italy and Germany with four and Brazil with five. So this matters to both teams. Obviously, it's uh, making a certain level of history, etching your way higher and higher. And it should be epic. At the beginning of the tournament, I did not see France making the final. I definitely had Argentina as eventual winners. I I believed heavily in this team, in Scaloni and in Messi. But I really wasn't sure about the France team because of all the injuries that they had, and so it's a surprise to me that they're here. But the World Cup has been loaded with surprises, absolutely loaded. And it's one of the reasons why many people are calling it the best World Cup they've ever seen. For me, 2018 was a seminal moment for me in World Cups because I'd heard and heard about upsets from the past, seen upsets, sort of like Senegal beating France in 2002 and, you know, Portugal not making it out of the group stage in that same tournament. There have always been upsets and, and moments where big teams fall. But 2018 felt different to me. It felt like these were not just upsets. These were smaller teams being able to have either the quality or the tactical ability to beat a bigger team. And it was happening with more and more, just, it was just happening more and more often. And we saw it again in this tournament where there were so many surprises and they didn't feel like flukes that often. They felt like, well, this is the way football's going. A lot of these smaller countries in terms of, and sort of newer football nations, they, they've really come a long way and have closed the gap. A great example of this really is are two semifinalists who played in the third place game, Croatia and Morocco. So let's talk about that. Croatia versus Morocco, third place match. Morocco win, or pardon me, Croatia win 2-1. They win from an absolutely stunning goal from Mislav Orsic, who has a curler that hits the post and goes in. The game started brilliantly, uh, high intensity, high pace, and... Croatia took the lead from a really, really nicely worked set piece. Josko Gvardiol getting a goal that he is totally merited for his performances in this tournament. And then within just a minute or two, Morocco equalized from their own set piece. So got the game going. Mislav Orsic scores before half uh, scores before half time, and then that score held in the second half. So the question for a lot of people in the third place game: Does anybody care? Well, first of all, you have to look at the images of today's game. Look at the way the Moroccans are feeling after they've lost in front of what really is, in a lot of ways, a home crowd. Look at the way the Croatians are proud of themselves and for their performance, for their overall World Cup, and to finish third for the second time in their history. Morocco have arrived at their first semifinal, first semifinal for an African team. These are these are big moments, right? Yes, they've achieved a lot, but when you're given one extra game to go one step further, it's important. It matters. And I think a lot of people in the media don't really like to try to sell this game because it feels like a strange consolation match where a lot of people say it's the game that no one wants to play. Well, 
I, I don't necessarily agree with that because I, I watch these third place matches every single World Cup and every single time it looks as if there is a genuine feeling of pride in this match, whether it's for players who score, whether it's for uh, young players who get an opportunity that maybe didn't throughout the tournament, and also the, the nations. What you can see at the end of the match, the way one team is celebrating and one team is disappointed, that it does matter. I, I looked at highlights of past third-place games, and <laughs> I watched the 2002 edition between Turkey and South Korea. South Korea were playing at home. Yes, these two teams were in a third-place game, they, which means they made it to the semifinal of the 2002 World Cup. So there was a surprise there. Turkey scored within – they scored in the 11th second of the match. This game ended 3-2. It was a fantastic game. I remember it. But watching the highlights, you can see just how much every part of it means to the players. It's so obvious that they care. It, it, it just is. At the end of the match, there were Koreans falling all over on the floor, and there were Turkish players pumping their fists in excitement. If I showed you those highlights and told you this was a semifinal, y you would totally believe me because you would see the emotion. You wouldn't say... Really, it doesn't look like anyone really cares, right? You wouldn't look at the way the fans are celebrating in the stands and say, I don't, isn't this a consolation game? You wouldn't do that because that is not what we actually see with our eyes. I will say, branding-wise, right, there's something that the Olympics does very well, having a podium of three, but you can't really do that in, a, in football tournaments where you have semifinals and then a final. The third place Maybe they keep the team around to do a podium at the end of the tournament. That Maybe that makes it a little bit more, gives it a little more luster. But I, I don't think that's important. I think that when we actually look at the history books, it starts to matter a little bit. For instance, the United States in 1930, I know it was an eight-game, eight-team tournament. I know it was very small. But the very first World Cup, the United States finished third. They, they won that consolation match and they finished third. What that means is that for the future here, if the United States, if they want to have their best ever World Cup achievement, they have to get to a final. I mean, that, that really is it. They can equal a third place by getting to a semi, losing, and then winning the third place match. But if the United States want to have their best ever World Cup achievement, the bar is high. Because in the history books, it says third. No African team has finished third at the World Cup because today Morocco were beaten by Croatia. There is now a bar, something that another nation can set out to be the first to do. Keep in mind, these, these may not seem like meaningful, important things, especially from one day's news cycle to the next. No one really cares who finished third at the World Cup. But down the line, in the end, people talk about these things and it starts to matter. Another thing about the third place game a lot of people forget is that there tends to be something on the line for some individuals. It wasn't today, but for instance, you take 1998, Davor Shuker solidified his golden boot in that third place game when Croatia beat the Netherlands. Davor Shuker had had an amazing tournament. Croatia, it was their first ever World Cup. They had been a nation for, footballing nation for just eight years, and they went to the semifinal. This is one of those things that we also have to remember just where the game is going for a lot of other nations. 
Croatia have now been in three semifinals in their World Cup history. Every time they've gotten out of the group stage, they have reached the semifinal. That's that's quite impressive. They continue to produce fantastic players, generational talents, and why not consider them a force every single World Cup that they may just have a squad, may just have a team belief and a system where they can go far because they've shown that frequently they can, right? They've been bounced at the group stage uh, in a few World Cups, but they've also been able to advance to two semifinals and a final, and this is in their short history. Morocco, one of the things that they did in the last 10, 15 years was they built a really important high-end academy, an, an academy system to really find talent and nurture it. And they've also made a point of trying to recruit players, not just from the diaspora, right? All the players who are who have Moroccan descent that live abroad, but also to convince dual nationals from a very young age. Say if you have a dual national Moroccan that lives in Spain or France or Holland or something like that, that you actually go to them and say, hey, we want you in our youth programs. One of the things that was traditionally happening with a lot of top players that played in European leagues when they were young is these federations didn't necessarily go and try and sway them. They just waited essentially for the players to become rejects of that national team and then say, hey, well, you know, if you want to play in the World Cup, we can offer you a pathway. No, now they've been a little more aggressive about trying to get these players into youth national teams younger, give them an option, give them an opportunity, see what it's all about. And players start to make these changes. They start to decide, no, I want to play for, you know, the country that my parents came from or it, it 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 becomes a little bit more powerful. I think the United States, Greg Berhalter did this with the U.S. pool. He went out and found dual nationals and really tried to make sure we can get some of these kids in. Serginho Dest is a great example. Anthony Robinson's a great example. Yunus Musa is a great example. And on the Moroccan side, Hakim Ziyech, we, I mean, really more than half the squad at this World Cup are dual nationals who many of them were born in Western Europe but were convinced to play for Morocco. And these are players who absolutely would have been good enough and were good enough at young ages to potentially play for those national teams in which in the countries in which they lived, but they made the choice to go to Morocco. So there is a concerted effort of, among uh, a lot of these federations to really try and harness a lot of the young talent that is available to them in some way or another. Whether they developed in the country or not, they are available to them. To give you an example of this, I talked about this back in, during the African Cup of Nations in January. I uh, had an episode on the Comoros Islands. I don't remember exactly which number that is right now, but I'm sure you can easily find it. Uh, the Comoros Islands is just a, it's a, it's a small group of islands off the coast of Madagascar. And so therefore, they really have a tiny population, but they were able to recruit from their diaspora. So a lot of people who have you know, a parent or a grandparent who is from the Comoros, uh, they went out and they found all these guys. Only two players in that national side were actually born in the Comoros. The rest were all born in France and play in France, but have decided to play for Comoros because, well, this is a, a national team opportunity. And Comoros actually got to the quarterfinals of the African Cup of Nations. So you see how a lot of these strategies are starting to be adopted by federations in ways that does strengthen their opportunity in major tournaments because when you have big players, 
you can have big moments and really big moments are what carry you in major tournaments, especially in knockout rounds. And we saw that with Morocco. They have important players who play in big leagues for big teams and they showed up in important moments to carry the team over the line against a Spain, against Portugal. Unfortunate for them, they finish fourth, but also, I mean, you have to give credit to to Croatia. This is just an unbelievable run. And I think, yeah, there's there's definitely a case to be made that these two teams got a little bit lucky to get here. I think uh, one of my friends got in touch with me and said, hey, uh, you know, do, do you think this Croatia thing is sort of by chance or do you think it's like, you know, really them having done the right things? And I think for both Croatia and Morocco, it, it was a similar situation of you you ride your luck to a certain degree, but you have to take your chances and you have to be... You have to have the strength of character to rise up in certain moments. So, when you get to a penalty shootout, you have to score your you have to score your shots. That's it. And I mean, that is one of the big differences in in the games between Croatia, Brazil, and Morocco, Spain. Spain missed all of their penalties. Uh, Brazil missed two, and their best penalty taker didn't take one. That w- that was the difference. As far as the actual matches went. There was a there was a difference in ability between the two teams, but what you also saw was a good game plan and players doing what they're good at can achieve anything, and this blueprint will be used by by many 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 national teams can, as we continue, and I think the gap between the big footballing nations, the traditional powerhouses, and the smaller ones is closing. Do I think it'll ever really close entirely? Probably not, but what we're seeing is more and more teams with quality able to actually compete on this big stage. So, uh, look, a massive congratulations to both of those two teams. They played a great match again today. Good advertisement for that third-place game. Very important. And now there's only one match left. Two teams remain, and it's this is it. This is really a, a kind of an amazing place to have arrived Again, I've said France. I did not expect them to get this far at all, and mostly because of the injuries. So when we talk about the injuries to France, obviously this has been well documented. But really, I I I think what's, what's interesting is I've heard a lot of people say that these two teams have not performed really at their best in this tournament. And if they have, it's only been in flashes. They have rarely been dominant throughout a game. So Argentina, I'd say were dominant against Croatia, but for a lot of people that felt like, yeah, well, Croatia, you know, they handled them. But against a good side, we haven't really seen them be dominant. And France were outplayed by England and they, they struggled for long periods against Morocco. So what does that mean? I think what you need to understand about international football, especially at knockout stages, that it really is not about patterns of play and consistent dominance. It is about moments, massively about moments. And you can look at just any knockout game in history where the score is not, say, 3-0, and you can see so many points in the game where things could have gone totally differently. There's so many in every single one of these matches. So... For a lot of the English, for instance, they were bemoaning the fact that the French did not really play all that well, but just capitalized on a few moments. 
And then, of course, trying to find an, an answer for that, they said, well, the manager didn't make the right changes at the right time, and that's why. He didn't make the right substitutions at the right moment, didn't go for it when he had the chance. You know, we I, I mentioned this uh, in my other videos, but if Olivier Giroud's header does not hit Maguire's arm, it looks to be going somewhat central in the goal, and maybe Pickford gets a hand to it, and it stays 1-1, and England, who knows, maybe they get that penalty, maybe they get another chance a couple minutes later, and they score, and they win 2-1. I mean, it, is, it, it can happen in, in such small moments. So to look at these two teams and say, well, I'm just not sure they were the best teams here. Well, here's the reality. They're the last two standing, right? Portugal and Brazil probably played the most scintillating football of the tournament in a whole match, right, in their round of 16 games. Brazil absolutely destroying South Korea. Portugal making complete mincemeat of the Swiss. I mean, it was... Those two games were such in in totality, such dominant performances with loads of goals that I think a lot of people felt like, ah, that's what we want to see the world champion, the eventual world champion do. And to be honest, it's very rare that the eventual world champion does that uh, with much frequency at all during the tournament. I mean, sure, it may happen during the group stage or one knockout round, but once you start playing better teams, it, 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 it just doesn't happen. Teams don't run over quality opponents in that way. So Argentina, to get to this final, what did they have to do? Well, they, they initially lost to Saudi Arabia, which means that if they were to win, they would be only the second team in history to lose their opening match and go on to win the whole thing. Spain did that in 2010, losing to Switzerland 1-0 and then going on to outpossess every single team and pretty much kill them with possession to win the World Cup. It was, it was pretty impressive. But... Uh, Spain didn't steamroll anybody. They just did their thing and, and won. And uh, Argentina have not really had to steamroll anybody either. They they revived their World Cup. They had a very difficult first half in their second match against Mexico where the pressure was really high. Lionel Messi scores a terrific goal, gets them going. Enzo Fernandez scores. And then things really started to click into gear. They had a difficult night against Poland, mostly because Poland had Wojciech Szczesny playing just out of his mind just making saves all over the place, including a messy penalty. But uh, Argentina dealt with that pretty well. Once they got to the knockouts, they had a very, very tense last 15 minutes against Australia, up 2-0. Craig Goodwin takes a, sh a shot, it's deflected, it goes in. And then the next 15 minutes, while Australia were just pouring pressure on, Argentina couldn't close out the game, and it got very, very tight, with Australia almost scoring twice in the last few minutes of the game. Then there was the epic match against the Netherlands where they have a two-goal lead. And then once the Netherlands throw on Voot Veghorst and uh, Luke de Jong, the big guys, it just turned into complete pandemonium. That free kick that the Dutch scored to equalize at the absolute death of the game was a terrific moment. It was an amazing moment. But for Argentina, it, it sent the game into extra time. They couldn't win in that, even though they created chances. And then they had to win on penalties. So it was very difficult. Finally, they get a game where everything goes well for them. They got the bounces. They got the calls. They win 3-0 against Croatia, and they make it to the final. And it seems like everything has built up for them, right? They had to lose on the opening day. They had to go through a ton of pressure, start squeaking together results, and their best performance was their most recent. Lionel Messi having his best performance, I think, of the tournament in that match against Croatia. 
even though all of his performances have been pretty good, if not exceptional. So Argentina are in a great place. It seems that everyone's fit. They've got people back from suspension. Everything seems to be going great for them. France, on the other hand, well, well, we'll see how this goes. At the moment, we are hearing of a flu that has ravaged the camp. So we'll see how much of an impact that actually has. On squad selection, I'm sure at this point they're keeping everything, they're keeping the lid on pretty much anything. They don't want, uh, I, I doubt they want much more in terms of stories coming out. So we, we, we will see uh, what happens with France. But let's talk about their road. When the tournament first started, I was pretty concerned because there was that World Cup curse that a lot of us had talked about. I don't really believe in curses, but I... Uh, I think that there was something to the fact that a lot of champions were coming in more or less stale because the teams that they had won the previous tournament with a lot of the time carried over into this next tournament where it's like, no, we want to go again. Uh, refreshing the team is a very important thing to be able to do. Now, I will say, when I heard that Paul Pogba was injured and would likely miss the World Cup, I remember thinking, you know, this isn't the worst thing because there are other good central midfielders and they may not try to dictate the game as much, but actually just play as dynamic midfielders. Whereas Paul Pogba sort of puts himself in, in, in the role of dictating the play. That's all well and good when you've also got Antoine Griezmann on the field and possibly Karim Benzema, right? If Benzema's out there, he's also orchestrating play. It's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. But the injuries kept stacking up. So N'Golo Kante also got injured. Mike Magnon, the goalkeeper, got injured. Christopher Nkunku got injured. Presnel Kimpembe, Lucas Hernandez during the early games in the tournament towards ACL. It's a massive impact on the French team. It's six starting players. It's, it's not just nothing. But what it did do, I think, was it gave Deschamps a much easier squad selection task. Without Nkunku and without Benzema, well, you start Giroud at center forward and that's all there is to it. And Giroud has, for years, shown that he can do a job, especially for Deschamps. But it's incredible how what it did was it made it so that the bench players, they just really do accept what their role is in the team, right? Matteo Genduzzi... Randall Kolomwani, Marcus Tuham, these are not guys who are looking at Deschamps going like, come on, man. Like, why am I not on the field? They're really happy to be at the World Cup. And I'm sure they know that if the list of players that, the, the list of injured players, if those guys were all fit, I mean, there's six guys there who wouldn't be on the plane. They wouldn't have, made, they wouldn't have been there. They wouldn't be in contention to pick up a World Cup medal. So you have to think about that. That's very important that it, it changed the way the vibe of the team was. And Deschamps did a very good job of harnessing a starting lineup that he felt you know, strong and comfortable with. But more than anything, that he had a bench that he knew would just be supportive and would do the work of secondary players. It, 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 for a coach, it's, it's a weird thing. You do want your, the most stacked lineup you can have because you want all your options. But you know at the same time that that comes with baggage. It comes with egos and players who want to play because you can only put so many on at a time. Take a look at England, for instance. Throughout the tournament, there was constant clamor for who should start, who should play, should it be Foden, should it be Grealish, 
Why has Madison not gotten a game? You know, should Harry Kane be dropped in this match? I mean, there are all these these discussions that the French team really does not have. Rabiot has been very good. Chouameni has been very good. And so then Antoine Griezmann is the third midfielder, and there you go. Settled, taken care of. The only major contentious thing that Deschamps has had to do is bench Benjamin Pavard and play Jules Koundé. That, that really is it. Uh, and, of course, Pavard's not happy, of course, for, for being essentially dropped. I mean, he was a starter in 2018. But the situation doesn't seem to have affected the team. So on they go. I, I will say, Deschamps has an incredible way of setting up a team in very similar fashion to the 98 and 2000 teams that he played for and won titles with. France seemed to play what is really a 4-4-2. I know that it says 4-3-3 because Ousmane Dembélé is on the right, Kylian Mbappé on the left, and Giroud up front. But Mbappé doesn't defend at all. Uh, I, I, he is uh, uh, The statistic is that he has made the cover the least amount of ground defensively of any player in the tournament. So, like, zero defending. Like, no one defends less than Kylian Mbappe, which is quite amazing if you think about it. So he just hangs out on the left wing. Giroud is going to sort of plug holes kind of in the middle, maybe pressure the holding midfielder, put some pressure on the center backs. And then Ousmane Dembélé is actually more or less playing right midfield, not right wing. He's not up high. This is exactly what they did with Blaise Matuidi in the 2018 tournament. And it looks very similar to the way that Emile Jacquet had the team playing in 98 and Roger Lemaire had the team playing in 2000. There is this very, there is a 4-4-2 that just keeps on appearing. Now, it may not be that on paper, but believe me, in, in in defensive moments and also when they're trying to transition, it is more of a 4 4 2 I also think about players that uh, have been crucially important to this run. Rafael Varane, massively important to this team. He may miss the final. We don't know. Again, he's one of one of the players missing. Uh, Ibrahim Okunate had a great game against Morocco and was much better than Dayo Pamecano, who Upamecano is now fit after having missed the match due to illness, and now Konate might also be out with illness. So th- there is a flu ripping through the France camp, and it is causing chaos. I'm sure at this point, Kylian Mbappe is in some kind of uh, hyperbaric chamber. It's not the ideal for France, but look, at the same time, it's a World Cup final. And, I mean, look, I, I think at a certain point, players... Over the course of history, you've heard of players playing sick or hung over at times, or even we've heard about the the no hitter that um, baseball player threw when he was on acid. So th- there's there's definitely moments where players, once the adrenaline and intensity takes over, they can just perform. However, if you have a fever, flu, I, you know, I don't I don't know I don't know what the protocols would be with the team doctors and everything. So France have an interesting situation. We do not know really what's going to happen in terms of their squad selection. But it can also be, you know, kind of a chip on the shoulder for them in terms of like, look, we're going to be the underdogs going into this game because the other team has Lionel Messi. And we've also got illness ripping through the camp. So we're having to, you know, possibly put things together. We're possibly having to play people that aren't fit. So we're the underdogs. For France, this works just 
perfectly. They are more than happy to take on that role. And look, the reality is they have to take on that role because they will be party spoilers if they win this game. If France win this World Cup, I don't think there are a whole lot of neutrals who would be happy about it. Um, I think most people wouldn't care, really, but where people's allegiance lies tends to be at the moment with Lionel Messi, and I totally, totally understand that. Uh, Lionel Messi is the greatest player I've ever seen. I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen anything so consistent. I've never seen him do the things that he is capable of doing with such regularity. Um, No one else has been like him. Top players I've seen, Ronaldinho, the original Ronaldo, even Cristiano Ronaldo, Kaká, Zinedine Zidane, Ballon d'Or winners. They were amazing, outstanding for two or three years, untouchable. But eventually, you know, younger players started to shine a little bit more and they slowed down a little bit and didn't have as much of an influence. But Lionel Messi has been doing the exact same thing since he was 16, 17 years old. It's, it's astonishing. It really is amazing. So, you know, me, I personally am uh, torn on this one because I want France to win for sure. You don't know, you don't know the next time your country's going to win a world cup in your lifetime. And, I've seen France win two, so I, do I, am I greedy of France if I want France to win a third? Uh, the reality is if they, you know, when's the next one they'll win? And you can ask many countries, for some reason it can take a very, very long time. At the same time, it's the greatest player I've ever seen. I, I personally believe the greatest player of all time for not just the numbers uh, and the consistency and the brilliance, but also the freakish nature of the way he plays, he is just unlike anyone else. No matter how hard you work, I don't think you can become that. Um, it would be lovely for him as a story to have this title, considering all of the baggage that's crept around for years. And he's got a team that's willing to fight for him. I mean, it's amazing to see guys who are 21, 22 years old in that team. They're playing with a 35 Lionel Messi. I mean, do the math on this. They have been probably the biggest Messi fans since they were little kids. And now they're playing with him and they have a chance to fix what didn't happen in 2014 or in 2010 when Argentina had really, really good sides and couldn't deliver. It's going to be an absolutely fantastic final. And uh, just an ode to two players who went from not much to getting to this point. The first one's Emmy Martinez, the Argentine goalkeeper. This is just a lovely story. So... When he was 17 years old, he was noticed by Arsenal, did a trial, and was signed by the club shortly after his 17th birthday. This was back in 2012. He went on to go through the academy at Arsenal and become a professional footballer and went on quite a few loans. He started off on loan at Oxford United, then did his season at Sheffield Wednesday, then went to Rotherham United, then went to Wolverhampton Wanderers. Went to Getafe in Spain, came back to England, went to Reading. Then he was sitting on the Arsenal bench. And Arsenal were playing a game against Brighton. And Neil Mopé, the French striker, he uh, got in a collision with Bern Leno, the Arsenal goalkeeper. And Bern Leno got injured. And he was out for, he was going to be out for quite a while, a few weeks at least. And Emmy Martinez got his chance, finally. He's playing in Premier League games. He's playing in the FA Cup. 
Arsenal win the FA Cup. On and and he was and he was an outstanding player in that game. Uh, I was going to say on penalties, but it wasn't on penalties. The penalties came when he got his call up for Argentina. So now, having shown at the on the big stage in the Premier League FA Cup, he got called up to the Argentine national team and played in the Copa America with them and was crucial in the shootout, especially the one against Colombia, where he made some key saves and all of us got to see his trash talking and hear it because this was a COVID event. So there were no fans in the, there were no, there was no crowd. So you could hear everything the players were saying. And I think that mixed with the fact that they ended up winning and he had great performances made him the nailed on number one for Argentina. But also there was this huge appreciation from players like Messi and, 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 and others on the team who had no idea who Emmy Martinez was. I mean, he went to the 2008 World Cup, 2018 World Cup as a fan of Argentina. He was in the crowd. He had to buy his ticket. He was, you know, a footballer that was on contract at Arsenal, but was playing for championship sides, League One sides, really a nobody. And then just like this, now he's in a World Cup final. It's it's fantastic. So big shout out to him. I saw a photo of him in the crowd at the 2018 World Cup as just a fan, and it was like, wow, you know, this does happen to players. It, you know, it happened to Harry Maguire. I remember Jamie Vardy when guys like these, when they got called up four years earlier, they were nobodies. It's cool to see this, but it's a player who put 10 years in of of you know work as an Argentine kid, 17 years old. He went to England, spent 10 years just trudging through it and eventually got his chance and here he is so it's a great it's a great story the other one's Olivier Giroud I I just want to touch on him again because he has broken France's all-time goal scoring record at this tournament Uh, he has sort of avenged the ghosts from the 2018 tournament where yes he had some assists and, and, and played well but he didn't score a goal in that last tournament and that tag was following him around so he wanted to wipe that clean Got his opportunity because of injuries, yes, but he has taken it. Kind of an amazing thing. He came, came through the lower leagues. A lot of people never, didn't really believe in him. He was actually at Grenoble, Grenoble with uh, Walid Wigragi, the Moroccan coach. They played together there. And, I mean, this is, you know, much more humble beginnings than a lot of, than a lot of the players in this side who, you know, from, a, from the age of teenager or whatever have been in a, a top Ligue 1 side. Eventually, Giroud made his way up the leagues. He got to Montpellier, then got a move to Arsenal. It ended at Arsenal. He went to Chelsea. And everywhere he goes, he seems to get revenge because he wasn't totally adored at Arsenal despite scoring some incredible goals and being a part of the teams. Uh, It was during a period of slight decline for Arsenal, and I think he was made part of a scapegoat like, like many others were. But he was sort of laughed at for the way he played, and a lot of people considered him sort of lucky. Then he moves on to Chelsea, and he's really impactful as a backup striker. They win the Europa League with him. They win the Champions League with him. And he had an important role to play in both of those seasons. But again, he was never really considered a starter. So what does he do? He goes off to AC Milan, and he wins a Scudetto there. Don't count this guy out. It's it's a quite a quite a remarkable journey he's been on, and for him to have come to the tournament and had the impact he's had has been fantastic. All right, so what's going to happen? 
honestly, I, I don't like predictions. Um, I think doing score predictions is a little bit strange. What I'm hoping for is a multi-goal final. I, I would like both teams to score. That would at least make it interesting. If both teams score two, that would make it very interesting. But I think this hinges heavily on who scores first and how long it takes for that goal to happen, right? If, if, if we don't see it until midway through the second half, we will see a, a very strange period of time after that goal where one team's probably going to be defending for their lives and the other one's going to maybe be panicking. If we see an early goal, I, I think we'll just see the game come to life very quickly and both teams are just going to have to go at each other. It's going, to be, it's going to be fascinating. I think both teams will play a pretty clean match because, like I said, there's no bad blood between these teams. They haven't played each other enough. They don't have a dirty history between them. And also, the stakes are so high. You know, you get sent off in a World Cup final. It's, it, you really may be throwing it all away for your team. So it's going to be terrific. And, and look, this World Cup has been fantastic. I, I, this is not going to be the last episode. We'll talk about the World Cup final after it happens. And then I will also want to mention a few other things. Closing on the World Cup, talking about, first of all, team of the tournament, goals of the tournament, sort of the highlights, but also what the exit from Qatar is going to be. I want to talk a little bit about the stadiums and some of the plans that I've read about for what will happen once the show leaves town. I think it's very interesting. We'll see how much of that happens. There's a lot of things to discuss, but this has been a fantastic World Cup for anyone who has been able to follow at least some of it. I hope you've been able to latch on to some of the incredible stories. And also, I really do hope for any of you out there who still believe that this World Cup, A, should never have been hosted in Qatar and that it's a country that doesn't deserve it. What I would ask you to do is check out a few interviews with Hassan Al-Tawadi, especially the one on Talk Sport, where he talks to Simon Jordan and Jim White about Qatar. Look, you can make your own judgments up after having listened. But one of the big things that the Qataris have said in terms of the organizing committee for the World Cup is like, hear us out and engage with us. We're willing to we're willing and open to hear criticism as long as it's fair, first of all. And I I know that that, that may bother people, but <laughs> things that are actionable, right? If you have a criticism that is somewhat constructive and something could be done, they say they want to hear it. Uh, I think it's been very interesting to see the way the different medias have collided on this, the way some medias dig their heels in that this is an evil World Cup. And then there's also people on the ground taking videos and showing their YouTube channels where everyone seems to be having a really good time and there seems to be a lot of really good cross-cultural exchanges happening and that it's an extremely positive experience. So... I would say for any of you who've been critical of this World Cup, do a little more research because there are a lot, there's a lot of nuance to it. The human rights issues, the LGBT issues, what, th- th- those are part of the story, but there's even more to it. And it's, this World Cup has put a lot of these things in focus in a very intriguing way. So that's it. We're almost up. One match to go, 63 down, the final of the World Cup, France against Argentina. I'm Sebastian North. This is Campfire Football. Have a good day.